Welcome to this episode of Living Legends, brought to you by New Farm and Weedman. I'm your host, John Reitman, and our guest today is Dick Gray, who at age 75 is the superintendent of three golf courses at PGA Golf Club in Port St. Lucie, Florida. As some of you might remember, Dick also was our 2016 superintendent of the year. I've noticed on your business cards that it says Dick Gray Greenkeeper. <laughs> doesn't say superintendent anywhere. Yeah. You go yeah. by the title of greenkeeper. Yeah. What's that all about? That's, that's, I tell you, that's a good one. When I was younger, we fought so hard. We, you know, as an in, I think as an industry, we fought so hard to be recognized as somebody that was important on the golf course. You know, as I got older, then we realized that, as it was explained different parts, whether it's police superintendents, there's school superintendents, there's a bunch of different kind of superintendents, plant superintendents. So, you know, maybe we should be something else, but they, everybody was comfortable with superintendent. But I look at it this way. My function, not my role, my function is greenkeeping. That's my function. I'm the keeper of the green. That's my function. I'm not the only one to feel this way. You, you talk about um, Medina, a friend of mine, Oscar Miles. I don't know if you remember Oscar I or not. Oscar. Oscar and I talked about this 40 years ago that we were green keepers and comfortable with that term because we were the keeper of the green, which was an old term. So anyway, I, I just looked at that and said, okay, that's my function. I'm the keeper of the green. I'm the green keeper. Because when you get into this business, for the most part, I think most of us got into this business because we liked to do green keeping on the golf course. You started out raking traps and mowing greens and cutting cups. That's how I started on this little nine-hole muni that I grew up on. Which was what? It was Dykeman Park in Logansport, Indiana. It was a... Uh, a um, Doggone, what was that guy's name? Uh, Langford. It was a William Langford golf course, you know, and he was kind of a collectible. If you liked older golf courses, that would be very collectible. Maybe not as collectible as a Ross, but a very collectible golf course. It's now 18 holes, but it was a nine-holer when I started up there, you know. So, and I enjoyed the greenkeeping part of it. I was a pre-med student going back to Wabash College where I was going to school at the time. But worked the summers, and I thought, you know, I kind of like to do this. And the guy told me, you know, you can, you can be a, a greenkeeper. They, they, you can go to school for that. Which I'm 20 years old, and I didn't know that. I thought, you're kidding me. Where can you do that? And he said, at Purdue. Well, Purdue's 25 mile north of Wabash, you know, where I, Crawfordsville, where I went to school. I said, really? So I changed my major, and so I was a zo botany major so I flipped it and became a botany major and a zoo minor and then my goal was to go to Purdue when I got out of school so green keeping is what got me there because I liked it I enjoyed working on the golf course so that would be my core if somebody said what are you going to be the best at if you're going to be a superintendent what do you want to be known for of all the things that you can be and I said, well, obviously, I want to be the best greenkeeper because that means my golf course is going to be the best, okay? So if you took that and said, okay, let's expand it. 
and look at this whole field, and we can call it turf management. That's a big, big umbrella called turf management. Or you could have a big umbrella be called, called the superintendent. That's an umbrella. And this umbrella has all these ribs in it. And the strength of the umbrella is in the ribs. Okay? So if you think of each rib as being a skill set, so you got these superintendents out there and they've all got different sized umbrellas and different strengths in their umbrella because some people are really strong at something which makes that rib a little longer and some people have more skill sets and the other ones got more 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 uh, ribs in the umbrella so here's your umbrella right so you got leadership in there and you got communication skills and all of this stuff whatever you think a skill set is that makes a superintendent a good superintendent that's a rib in this umbrella. But the most important part of that umbrella, not the rib, it's the handle. That's where all these things come together. And the handle better be green keeping. That's what makes it go. Because if not, and you're gonna be really successful, you're gonna have to hire a green keeper. Someone who has the heart of a green keeper. So you better have the heart of a green keeper to be a superintendent, but to function is greenkeeping. If you have to hire the greenkeeping and you think that your strong part is leadership, then you might be just mediocre. You'll never be as good as you could or should be if you're not a green have the heart of a greenkeeper because you're going to miss the detail in greenkeeping. You're going to miss that feeling, that art of greenkeeping. You're not going to have that. You're going to have to hire that. And if he doesn't feel or she doesn't feel like you feel, you're just going to be less than what you could be or should be. And I like to think that you're going to be mediocre. And I can't think of anybody that wants to be known as mediocre in this field. Before we turned on the recorder, we were chatting a little bit, and you pointed over to your wall of clipboards over here yeah. and said, now that's old school, and you've got a pile of... Uh, since we don't have video here, pile of labels, labels from various pesticides, insecticides, right. fungicides, so forth. Why have you foregone the ease and convenience of online record keeping to do things the way that you do? Be All right, let me start with, because if somebody's going to listen, they're going to say, that old guy, he's just all bootstraps. Nothing wrong with that, but I have a master's degree, okay? So I'm familiar with that stuff. But I'm also a control freak, as all superintendents need to be. You need to be a control freak, because if it's out of your control, you can't control it. And then you're crossing your fingers and hoping, like I'm hoping this concrete truck arrives this morning for these cart paths we're trying to do, because I don't have any control over the concrete truck. But I'm a control freak, so everything I have up there, I don't have to read. To, to go anywhere to get it, it's right in front of me, and it's in my handwriting, and it's right there. And I know where everything, every clipboard, you know, I know what those clipboards are there for. And, and um, it's easy for me to, if somebody asks me a question and they need to see something, I say, well, it's right here. I wrote it down here, right here it is. And then up there on the calendars, you know, I got two months up there, I got July and August. And um, we're in July now, but I fill out every day with the weather, what the weather was. If you look up there, you'll see those big blue raindrops. Okay, that tells us it was raining. 
and then you'll see the sun out there and you'll see those sun faces and that was a sunny day and then you'll see that some of those sun faces have little red splotches on them that means it was over 100 degrees okay so i can look at, and then i take a picture of that at the end of the month i take a picture of that so that's my record for that month but i can just pull it up real quick on my cell phone and say okay this was july and as you can see we had this many really hot days and you can see how how, how the, the month unfolded weather-wise. So it's obviously, you know, it's my my path of where I'm going, and it's also the path of where I've been with the weather. So it's too easy for me to swing in there and write that down, and I always use a pencil. I never use a pen. and I always use the same one. It's a little yellow one with a little rubber eraser. And um, I do everything in pencil because the day changes. You know, and so I have to erase a lot of things. And I know I've had a good month if the lead lasts doesn't as long doesn't last as long as the eraser. If the eraser lasts longer than the lead, I've had a good month. If the eraser wears out before the lead does, I've had a bad month because I've had to use that eraser a lot. So just being a control freak, that's my controls. I don't have to worry about your computer not coming up, the internet coming up whatever there's no password involved up there as you can see it's just read the label and get it so it's too it's just a comfort zone and i think you know we've talked earlier about being a control freak where are you the most comfortable when you're in control you don't try to be that's just the way you are one thing you've always iterated is how you owe so much of your career to pete Dye. How did you meet him, and what is the impact he's had over the longevity of your career? Because you're now what, 75, 75, and you've been a quote-unquote greenkeeper for over 50 years. Yeah. And you're still working how many days a week? At least six days a week. Oh, no, I'm here, here seven here days a week. I work about 55 hours a week. I'm here seven days a week. Yeah. So a lot of people would say. This is church. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, so a lot of people are going to hear this and they're going to say, the first thing they're going to ask is why. Yeah. But, um, you know, the reality is is that you have had a, a career that's lasted a long time, and we'll get into some more specifics about that here in a bit. But tell us, you know, how did you meet Pete and the impact he's had on your career? Well, meeting Pete was really interesting because I went to Crooked Stick, and, and they hired me at Crooked Stick in 69. It was like February or March of 69. And Crooked Stick had just opened the other nine, so the previous summer. So it was fairly muddy and, and uh, wasn't all grown in yet and some things that need to be done. And I was just a kid, you know, I was 24 or 5, and uh, had had uh, two jobs, a nine-hole job at a muni and an 18-hole job at a public golf course, and I was offered this job and got lucky there to be offered the job. So... I went there, and I had not met Pete yet. I'd played some Pete golf, die golf courses, but Pete really wasn't a big name back then. You know, Pete had done some courses around Indianapolis that I'd played, like Hawthorne Hills. I played that thing when it just opened and didn't really know Pete, anything about Pete. And Monticello Country Club, he had scabbed nine holes onto that old golf course, and I'd played that before uh, going there. So I'd played a couple of dice some of Pete's stuff back in the early 60s, mid-60s. 
So now I'm at Crooked Stick, and I've just slack-jawed when I went there just to look at I've never seen a golf course that looked like that. So, you know, the court, the, uh, the uh, maintenance facility there was a Farron house for hogs. It was a pole barn, and we had a very uh, limited amount of equipment. And the irrigation system was, was quick couplers down in the center of the fairway and around the greens and tees are all quick couplers, snap valves. So on this particular day, it was in late May, I was running those things. We had a small crew, and the, the night waterman had not shown up for a couple days. He'd gotten sick, so I had to do that. We had very little play at this time in the part of Crooked Stick. At this point in time, I think we only had about 35 members. So I was out, and all I had on was a pair of shorts and a pair of tennis shoes. I didn't have anything else on them. There nobody around. That's how we kind of operated, and a visor. So I was out running this loop, chasing these sprinklers. So I'm hitting these quick couplers and moving them up and down, and I had about a four-hole loop that I was running. And, um, and I'm running. I don't mean I mean I was on foot, and I'm running, okay? So... I came back to number two where I'd started and the sprinkler was off. And I thought, Jesus, I know I turned that thing on because back then, you know, you had to have a pretty good arm to make that thing snap. You know, it wasn't like they would vibrate out. So, you know, I picked it up and it was kind of wet in that area, so I was okay with it. So I was going to go up, skip one and go up the alternate one. And this guy comes walking from the 8th fairway comes over to me. He's got a, like a blue shirt on, a pair of khakis and loafers. And he says, um, you keep watering that, you're going to run, keep running that water, you're going to run out of water in the summertime. And I said, well, if I don't water it, I won't be here in the summertime. No, he said, you're going to run out of water in August. And I said, well, if I don't water these things, I won't be here in August. And he said, um, are you the new guy they've hired here? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, I'm Pete Dye. And I said, oh, Pete, nice to meet you. He said, I've run out of water twice in August. And I said, yeah, but Pete, if I don't do this, there's these fairways are wilted now. They were, they were Marion bluegrass. And I had been mowing them at three quarters of an inch, only because I thought that's where you can really play good golf at these Marion blue fairways at three quarters of an inch. And I'd called Doc Daniel up because I, you know, from my Purdue days, and said, "Hey, Doc, what do you think about mowing these fairways at three quarters of an inch?" And Doc said, "You're a damn fool." He said, uh, "I've seen them wilt at an inch." So I thought, "Well, okay, then I'll just have to work harder because they played well at three quarters of an inch. Those Marion fairways back then were really good." So anyway, here's Pete, and he's out telling me that this, you know, you're going to run out of water. And we watered right there off the 8th fairway, you know, that big, it was a big uh, gasoline engine, a Red Seal Continental engine that drove this, this uh, centrifugal pump. And uh, so anyway, I said, okay, so we started walking and talking, turning off my sprinkler. So we walked the whole loop, and this took us about two hours to walk with Pete. And after that, I was a Pete Dye guy. I thought, geez, I really like this guy. He's so self-deprecating. Thing, first thing I noticed about Pete at that time, he said yeah, he was very, very self-deprecating. So we walked around, and, and I kind of bonded right away, you know, and I thought, this is my guy. But since that time, uh, and one thing that, about Pete is he gives you confidence. 
he instills confidence in you. And, um, you know, I went from there and uh, went into sales with the Scott Company for a few years. Then I got hooked up with uh, Pete and PB when we did Loblolly back in the kind of late 80s. And that was a great experience. And Crooked Stick was just a huge experience. I mean, it was just, I was young and, and impressionable. And it was just, it was just great. You know, we worked seven days a week and I was there every day and go back in the evening and probably working 60, 65. I never thought a thing about it. I'd take the kids there, you know, we had some ponds there. Never thought a thing about the energy, the effort, the time, anything. It was all about the big picture, the results, you know, just living the day, you know. It was just the journey, like, look at this. And then uh, Loblolly was the same thing when we built that thing out of sand. And for the record, you're talking about Loblolly Pines down in yes. Home Sound here in Florida. Right. Which is, for anybody who doesn't know, probably about halfway between Stewart and West Palm Beach. Right, right. And that was just a great experience there. I mean, real, real. You just the time never counted. The pay didn't count. As a matter of fact, I took two Pete Dye jobs and never asked what it paid. I didn't care. I wanted to work on that thing. That's what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, you know, a lot of times work is its own reward. It's like working out. Working out is a reward. You know, you get it just working out is its own reward. And so. Um, from there, and that worked out really well, and then to come up here and find a Pete Dye golf course that had really been uh, abused. You know, I really felt bad. I thought, see, many Christmas, as good as Pete is, as much as he's done, not only for this place, but just for the, the industry in general, to have leave this is an insult. And so, a big part of the reason why I accepted the job was this thing had to get back. I had to take this Pete Dye golf course and get it back to where it really needs to be. And so, uh, no, Pete's had a, a profound effect on me, and there's no way I can repay Pete or Alice, obviously, passed. But even the, you know, PB, I worked with PB and uh, learned a lot from PB. Uh, a lot of times he would explain as his dad explained to him, why and what. So, now I, we talked earlier about the luck. Well, that was the lucky part. I was just lucky enough to get there. And then, you know, after that, you know, if you work and pay attention and coach and get coached, it works out for you. But you have to be lucky enough to get into that spot. It's not like I earned my way. The dumbest thing those people at Crooked Stick ever did was hire me. I was not ready for that job. We'll be right back after a brief message from one of our sponsors. A new from New Farm is a proven plant growth regulator breakthrough, saving you time with less mowing and fewer clippings while improving the overall playability of greens, teas, and fairways. Labeled for both cool and warm season turf, Anu is a late-stage inhibitor with a novel mode of action that can be used on all managed turf areas to improve turf grass quality, density, and appearance. Anu is more active and longer-lasting than other late-stage growth regulators on cool-season turf, providing more regulation activity at lower doses. 
It is also the only PGR that can evenly regulate POA in mixed stands. A new worth the switch. We're back with Dick Gray of PGA Golf Club in Port St. Lucie, Florida. You've been in Florida now for how long? 37 years. 37 years. Half my life. And, yeah, and we could draw a pretty small circle that would include every place you've worked at down here. I know one of the things you've always said is I've been able to work down here for this long and never had to move or change a phone number right. or anything. Right. Um, take us through some of the places you've worked. Well, you know, I got really, really lucky. And um, I think in this business, your greens are your resume. We've always said that. You know, that's not novel. Your greens are your resume. And that's how you kind of look at it. And people will forgive a bad lie in the fairway. Now I'm talking about the average dick, okay? A bad lie in the fairway. They'll forgive maybe the T isn't quite, but there's no forgiveness on the green. You can have the greatest design out there, but if the play conditions are fairly poor, people won't come back regardless of the design. And so using that philosophy that you're going to your resume, you just make them so that whoever plays your golf course isn't going to play on better greens. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's just, and we all think that way. I mean, we all think that way. And um, I, I was fortunate uh, from the standpoint that um, I bumped into PB one afternoon because I didn't come down here as a superintendent. I came down here in sales with the Scott Company. They transferred me down here thinking that they had, you know, an issue that I could solve and it's turned out as a complete failure and I could solve nothing for them, you know. They had a problem that was insolvable. And... Uh, Luckily, I ran into PB just by happenstance, and he just, Dicky, how you doing? And got a you know big hug, and hadn't seen each other in a couple of years. He said, "You ready to do another one?" And I said, "I think I am." Really, what are you got to talk about? And he said, "Dad and I are going to do Loblolly. It's in Hope Sound, there in Sugar Sands." And I said, "Oh yeah, that's right where I live." And he said, "You interested?" And I said, "I'm your guy." So it started us up again. So we did that one. And I stayed a number of years. And then the owner, John Sullivan, uh, said, hey, you know, we were playing golf together one day. And I said, I always called him big guy. I said, hey, big guy, uh, you going to do another one? And he said, uh, find the ground. Find the piece of ground. We'll do one. So one of our friends and, and his attorney, Bob Kramer, found the Florida, the Florida Club, that piece of ground. So we built the Florida Club, and I was a, lucky enough to design it. You know, they were talking about maybe who, who we going to get to design it, and I said, I just blurred out. Hell, I can do that. You know, that's not hard to do. So they went with it. They put all that money, and they went with it. So we did the Florida Club. And then... Um, I was trying to go on my own, and I found a piece of ground, and I just couldn't get financing for it, and that got out of my control, and I'm a control freak, and I pulled back. I thought, I, I can't do this. 
I can't go doing this design thing not knowing because I'm a control freak. You know, I've got property. and So a guy offered me a job at Martin Downs. I used to live at Martin Downs for a short period of time, and my heart sank. I just didn't want to go there. But it was a great experience, huge experience for me there because when I went there, uh, they needed help, needed help bad. 36 holes, but I met John Cunningham. And he and I hit it off right away, and so we became the best of friends. He was the assistant there at the time. He was the assistant, and we became the best of friends and had a great time. And um, Interestingly enough, he only told me how he wanted that job. Yeah. He wanted to become the head superintendent, and he, he would talk about how when they came to him and said, John, we have to tell you we're gonna, we want you to stay, but we're going to hire Dick Gray. And so, which he didn't know me from left field, but it turned out really good. I mean, you could see in Johnny's eye, oh, you got to just talk to him for 10 minutes right away. You know, this cat is the cat for whatever it happens to be. This is the cat. So, um, Selfish Point was looking for a place. And I have to say this, you know, I worked for a bunch of golf pros and we used to butt heads. Superintendents and golf pros used to butt heads. You know, that's just the way it was in the older days. Well, that's all gone away. Now, you know, you kind of work together like a couple gears. Your gears have to mesh, like just the general manager and myself fear, you know. We have to work together, you know. We depend on each other, so gears have to mesh. Jimmy Terry. Well, it's right now it's... Um, uh, uh, He's moved on? Yeah, Jimmy's in Frisco, Texas. Okay. So he went went on to the, to do that project up there, and Jeremy Wernis is um, the GM here. But Jeremy's been here. Golf pro was head, you know, was a director of golf uh, for five years. So we've worked together. So you know, we think a lot, a lot, a lot alike. So anyway, a golf pro called me and said, "Hey, they need a superintendent at Selfish Point. Are you interested?" And I said, I don't think I, I, I don't know that I, I'm interested in that job. I don't know if I fit Selfish Point. It's right out there on the ocean. So I said, well, go talk to him. And I said, well, all right. So I went to talk to him and met a guy named Bob Graves, who was a green chairman. And, and uh, I walked away with a job one evening, just went in to talk to him and just got a job like that. So I went back and told Johnny, I said, Pardsy, we had a superintendent meeting on that day, and I said, this is my last day. You run the meeting because I'm going to Selfish Point. So I went there, and we had some projects to do there, which was really good. We did some projects there and got things going on, and I was there about 18 months, and the golf pro called me and said, would you come to Jupiter Hills? And I said, I don't think so. I don't think I fit Jupiter Hills. I don't think that's a good fit. Oh, you got to talk to him. No, nah, I don't think that's a good fit. So I let it go at that. Well, then someone from Jupiter Hills called and, hey, you know, we've got this. And I said, I know you got a great operation down there, but I don't think I, it's a good fit for me with you people there. I said, I think you've got an element there that I'm not going to be comfortable with. So I let it go at that. And about a week later, another one called, different guy. Hey, and I told him the same thing. And then about a week later, Another one called. Turns out to be the Green Chairman, and I didn't know him. Hell of a guy, Larry Warshburn, went to um, 
Ohio Wesleyan, played center for him, my age, six foot eight, okay? So anyway, he called, and I said, okay, partner. I said, since you got me, here's what I don't like about your operation. So he said, well, come down and just take a look and tell us what you do if you, if, you know, to help us out. I said, ah, but it's going to have to be after work. So I went. So as soon as I met this guy, I liked him. I thought, that's a hell of a guy. You know, I really like this guy. He's intelligent and he's fun. So, but I still didn't think it was for me. Well, politics changed at selfish point. And when politics changed, I realized that this selfish point was no longer for me. The politics were just overwhelmingly oppressive. And they had very, very little respect for their superintendent, this group of people that had gotten in. So I walked out of that meeting at selfish point, you know, and I thought, you know, You've told these people no three times down there in Jupiter Hills, and now you're saddled with these people for two more years. You're a fool. As luck would happen, and I like that luck word, they called back. <laughs> I couldn't get down there quick enough to sit and talk with them. So I sat there with them one afternoon and walked away with the job. They're at Selfish Point. They're at uh, Jupiter Hills. And uh, that was a good run. You know, It was a good place, and we did some good things there, and I enjoyed working there. But politics changed, and I'm not a politician, and I just say it like it is. And sometimes the truth hurts, but that's just the way it is. If you're from Indiana, I like to brag about that, being a Hoosier, you tell it like it is. You don't bullshit anybody, and you don't pick up any of that stuff. Well, that cost me a job, but that was okay. I didn't sell out. That was the key to me. Don't sell out. It's just a job, and it's just money. Don't sell out, which I didn't. So anyway, I walked away, no job. So um, just by being truthful. Uh, and then uh, I got a job. So I laid out for a while. I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. But by this time, I'd had a master's degree. And um, so I became a general manager back at the Florida Club. And I just had to do it. Just I needed to know, which I did not enjoy. Um, I could have been done more, but I just thought this isn't for me. And uh, so I went into sales selling uh, microbiology, which I thought was very, very interesting because that's what this is all about anyway. We came up thinking it was all about fertilizer and cutting height. Well, it's just like our bodies, you know, it's really about gut bacteria. You're only as good as your gut bacteria. and the same with turf. You're only good as your soil bacteria. So that was a great experience. I did that for four or five years with the Pathway Company. And then this thing opened up, and I had no intention of getting back on the golf course. I really liked what I was doing and the way we did it. But uh, my wife had uh, been re-diagnosed with breast cancer again, so I had to come off the road. And I didn't realize that this was going to be where I was going to land if I came off the road. I just knew that I would have to do that. But when Ted Bishop was the, God, was the uh, PGA president at the time, Theo and I went back years and years. We're from the same hometown. So when I came out to look at this thing just as a favor for, to him to find out what happened and what it's going to take to get it back, um, I saw the die and I thought, this is really oppressive. I was just really feeling bad. And Peter told Ted he's going to take his name off the golf course. 
if they didn't change things. So that's what was the impetus for the PGA to make this change. So they fired everybody. And um, so Ted called me from San Diego. The PGA was having a big meeting out there, and they had the board of directors and the officers. And I had sent this email, having gone out and checked everything, and I sent this email and back to him. And I didn't hear from him for about a week, and I was practicing my guitar one Saturday morning about 10 o'clock, and the phone rang, and it was Ted. And he said, hey, he said, I'm out here at the, our annual meeting out in San Diego, and he said, I got the board and the officers with me. He said, if I put you on a speakerphone, which is a huge mistake, he said, would you explain that email? And I said, well, sure. Now, you got to remember, I'm just talking to Ted, okay? Ted and I go back. We've got the same friends back in Logansport, Indiana, for years and years and years, and I used to write his maintenance program. Ted's got a degree from Purdue in turf management. So, and I used to write it for him when he was in Linton, Indiana. So I got this connection, and, and we were very good friends, you know, very, very comfortable with each other. So I said, all right, Theo, but i got to tell you. And, of course, I just let it fly because I'm talking to Ted like I'm talking to you. You know, I don't, I don't know anybody in the room, not one of those persons. And I already got a job, so I'm just going to tell him what they need to hear what the PGA needs to hear because they screwed this thing up so bad that they needed to hear this. And from that, I got a job for being honest. Honesty cost me a job at Jupiter Hills, but got me a job here. So uh, that's kind of the loop around to get me here. And this has really been very rewarding for me, very rewarding. I mean, the people that I've met that I would have never known, that I would have never met before, uh, the things that I've learned, since I've been here, the things that I've seen, it's been, really, I mean, very, very rewarding. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, it's, it's a great culmination of uh, people might think, well, you know, Jupiter Hills would, I said, no, 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 no. You can get stunned if you stay at a place like that. Now, they've got great people there, don't get me wrong. I've got some good people at Jupiter Hills. But if you're not careful, you can get stunted in your, not only your, um, well, in your growth, you know, um, not only just agronomic growth, because if you're at Jupiter Hills and you've got two golf courses and you've got 200 acres worth of problems, how long does it take you to sort out 200, years worth of pro 200 acres worth of problems? Three, four, five years? And after that, you don't have to think anymore. You just kind of got it on overdrive and you just go along and so what do you have to do then how do you get inspired because the gum runs out of sugar doesn't take long the gum runs out of sugar now you're just chewing so what do you do well you pick out a little project like okay i'm going to work on my crew i'm going to do what i can for these people you know because i don't want them to just to end up being weed eaters all their life these people have to have a future and a better way and a path going somewhere so that's kind of what you do. So if you stay at Jupiter Hills too long, that's what happens to you. And it was happening to me. You know, I finally, I, my dentist said, you know, that wife of yours is, because he knew my wife because my wife worked for him. But he said, you know, she, she's causing you to grind your teeth, isn't she? And I said, why do you, why? And he said, because you're, you're grinding your teeth. Well, that's why. Jupiter Hills, I was grinding my teeth. You know, I'm chewing the gum. It's out of sugar. Time to go. 
So as it was, I just told them the truth on a particular issue. And so they said, well, we're going a different direction. And I said, well, adios. And that was it. And that's just the way it went. So landing here, more challenges, three golf courses. Actually, we had four. Different group of people. Very appreciative. Of course, now, you know, I've used up a lot of the sugar in the gum, so we'll see how much left is how much, you know, flavor still there. But so far it's been good, it really has. I mean, I, I don't regret a lick of it. And that's why I come back day after day after day because of places I would rather be, I can only fish so much and I'm, I can only play golf once or twice a week and only nine or 10 holes at a time because I don't need to do that anymore much as I enjoy it, I really do. And you can only catch so many snook, and you can only be out there so long, and no sense fishing when they're not hitting. So, what's what's left? You come out here every morning. It's a new day. It's fresh air. Something happening. It's, everything works for us. I mean, I have no regrets. So you have a pretty unique relationship with your crew. Every time we drive around, you stop and talk to people. You call them all by name. You know everybody's name. As you call yourself Greenkeeper on your business card, you also consider yourself a coach. And as you, as you talk to people out on the golf course who are on your team, it's not uncommon for you to go up and either put your arm around them or grab them by the neck and <laughs> give it a little squeeze. That's the wrestling part of it all. Just explain, you know, how you develop the, the the philosophy and the outlook you have for the people who work for you. And how did that all develop, and how has that progressed over the years? Well, I, I probably wasn't like that to begin with, you know, when you're young like that, you know. But I was a, a lay wrestling coach. I wrestled, you know, in high school and college, and I was a lay wrestling coach, and I started hiring wrestlers on the golf course when I was a crooked stick. And because uh, I knew they could take a beating and they could handle the heat and the sweat and the inconvenience and the hard work and, you know, that's just the nature. And, uh, I, you know, I know what I respond to. You know, that's, that's the other part of it. You know, if you want to turn me off, raise your voice. That'll, I'm done. I'm deaf. You know, there's going to be a fight because I'm not going to, you know, and, you know, when I was somebody going to coach me, just put your hand on my shoulder and explain how we're going to do this and what we expect, and here's, here's what happens. This is going to have to happen. And then if it happens, well, the guy comes with, you know, good job. You know, here's what we, let's work on this. And with, with our people, so much of it is their, their language is limited. You know, there's a challenge there, and I just know that coaching is all feel you're teaching with feel that's what coaching is teaching with feel and a hand on the shoulder and then let them go ahead and do it and if they miss it i always take responsibility for it i almost always take the blame because i say it's a miscommunication it's my fault and i learned this when i was in sales if a guy didn't buy from from you it's your fault because you didn't transfer that feeling that it would make him feel the way you feel about whatever it is, because it's all feel, 
and then he would feel and maybe start to think like you do, and then you get what you want out of it. And so when you're coaching your team out there, so much of it has to be by example. I didn't know a lot of the words when I started this, you know, as far as a lot of the Spanish speakers. So I'd show them. And the first word you know, learn is bueno. You know, bueno. And just that it just evolved and it kept growing and, and that's kind of the way it is because, you know, I'm obviously coaching is a noble profession, very, very lucrative at some levels, but as far as coaching goes, because it's all, it's all feel and you're giving something and teaching something that can be used forever, as long as a person's alive, you know, that's something you're giving them, you know. And uh, when we're out here, I don't want these guys just to end up being career weed eaters. I want each of them to be able to progress along some path. And uh, so it's just has gone that way. Um, I, I really can't. I've not read about it. I haven't read any coaching books or philosophies from people. It's just things that, you know, you what worked on me. We're going to take another quick break for a brief message from one of our sponsors. Since 1999, Weedenman North America has distributed the Weedenman brand of specialized implements for compact tractors and light-duty utility vehicles. The German-engineered product line includes machines for turf regeneration, collection and removal of grass and leaves, turf sweepers, and sand spreaders. Consistency and reliability have been Weedenman's philosophy from the very beginning and the basis of its guiding principle of only the best. Weedenman North America is headquartered in Savannah, Georgia and managed by Will Wolverton. Visit Weedenman North America on the web at WiedenmanUSA.com. And we're back again on Living Legends with Dick Gray. I had this old old bird that I worked for. His name was Walker Hood. He had a black belt in common sense. I mean, just was that kind of guy. And he had this drawl. He drawled my name out now, Dick. When I first went to work with him, I may have told you this story, but when I first went to work with him, he goes, Dick, and he hands me this file. And he says, Dick, see this here file? You take care of this here file, this here file will take care of you. And I instantly knew what that meant. And he gave me that big mowing sigh, Dick, you see this here mowing sigh? You take care of that mowing sigh, that your mowing sigh is going to take care of you. I got it, Walker, I got it. From that, I kind of expanded into watering your horses because wherever I would go for a new thing on the golf course, Walker would come up and say, now, Dick, you see that there mound over there? You take care of that there mound. That there mound's going to take care of you. And you had me hand watering that mound along the edge of green. So, you know, from there, I got that was a philosophy. And from there, I have expanded it into watering your horses, taking care of your people. You're only as good as your horses. And that was a survival for 200 years ago when you had to have a horse to survive. And the horse was more important than you were. You take care of the horse, the horse will take care of you. So that's how that kind of came about. So I try to do that, you know, and the coaching part of it is all in there. You know, you just have to... And I think people realize that you give a damn. I mean, and you respect their work. 
you know, their effort. And if a guy didn't do it quite right, you know, I'd say bueno, you know, and I talk about, you know, bien trabajo, pero let's look at this and kind of redirect that energy. But never you made a mistake or you're wrong. And, and you know, I think when I was talking about that coaching, that's kind of the way it was back then. You, you, you don't deal in negatives. You hear that all the time, you know. But to me, it was just words until I started to, you know, use it on these people, thinking about how it worked on me. You know, I got a lot of negatives from things, and I thought well, that's kind of a big turnoff. But if you're, so I think coaching is. I'm going to out coach you. I don't care who it is. You know, that's my thought process. You know, you're smarter than I am. I'm going to out coach you. I'm used to seven days a week and. When I was in senior in college, this is just still haunts me. I was pretty good wrestling, and I blew a knee against Notre Dame. So I never was able to finish that, and I was a defending state champion. And I was never a collegiate. I was not able to continue that year. I was done. Cause, and I blew a knee because, and I was leading in the match. I got lazy. I had not prepared well enough in, in practice. I just got lazy. Third period, I'm at up. There's no way I can get beat. But I blew this knee, and I got beat. Had I wrestled, I'd have never blown the knee, but I didn't. I just got lazy in the match. Haunted me for a couple of years. Then when I finally realized it was my fault, that didn't just happen. That wasn't bad luck. I did it to me. I cost myself something that I really wanted. I didn't stay in position. And it still haunts me now because it cost me more than I could, would ever admit to people. But from that, the takeaway from that whole thing was I will never let that happen again. In my job, nobody is going to outwork me. I will always be prepared and I will be better prepared than anybody else. And that's kind of a drive and kind of the fuel from failure and from just being a dumbass at the time. You know, I was young, 22. But it cost me something that looking back was really a lot. But at the time, it didn't seem so much. It just seemed like a match. But it was more than that. So that's what really kind of drives me is this preparation. And so nobody's going to work more than seven days a week. So that's, and that's, you know, I try to coach that, but it's, it's kind of tough to do that. People have lives. So I get six days a week out of these guys. That's good. I still come here on, because I like to come here. I mean, this isn't downtown someplace where all these buildings are around. You've been around the place. It's pretty natural out here. You know, we got some great looks, some great views, some great sunrises. We're always taking pictures of sunrises, you know, comparing sunrises, seeing who has the best sunrise. You have three courses here now. There, there was a fourth that was sold off a year or so ago, all of which have gone undergone some phase of renovation since you've been here. I believe all four of them in four or five years. Yeah. You don't look 75, you don't act 75, you're still a pretty nimble guy. How do you keep the mind and the body 
young that you're able to still continue to do this? Well, I like what I do, number one. you got to like where you, what you do. To me, geography is very, very important. you got to like where you're at. I like where I'm at. I like what I do. I like the way they let me do what I do. I don't have anybody grabbing my wrist or grabbing my hand or saying, hey, I'll go ahead and do it the way I think it should be done. So that, to this point now, I think that, that, that gives us confidence. But the other part of it is, and I think this is a big part of it, is I work out a lot. Not I'm not a fanatic, but I work out a lot, and I enjoy learning. I mean, to me, that's the key. I want to learn more. I enjoy learning. I don't want to be entertained. That's why I don't have the sound on. I don't listen to the radio when my wife and I go on long trips driving. I've never turned the radio on. I've, got that, I've had that car five years. I've never had the radio on. I wouldn't even know how to turn it on because it's, I, don't, I want to think. I don't want to be entertained. I don't want to be distracted. I want to keep my mind where I want my mind. I'm that control freak, you know. So I just think that uh, the fact that there's a zest for life, and if I died tomorrow, wouldn't bother me. That's kind of sounds like a Yogi Bear, but um, I would have gone probably the way I wanted to go. Um, and I just think you have to take care of this as something a little different. I was talking to somebody, and he said, "I don't think I know anybody that sounds like that." But you know, to me, the next best new frontier is mitochondria. And it's probably there, and I'm way behind on it. But I started studying mitochondria and plants, just a history. I mean, we've all heard about them and everything, but really to find out, well, what is that thing, and where does it happen, and what goes on in that thing? And it all started out with where pesticides work. You know, they work in the mitochondria. That's what they attack, some system in the mitochondria. Well, we have mitochondria. Plants do, we do. So I just kind of got interested in, okay, give me the history of mitochondria. Where did they come from? It's like chloroplasts. Where does a chloroplast come from? How did that happen? Some people will say, well, God just made it. So, well, he may have, but show me where that happened at, okay? So you go back to the evolution of it. You know, you go back however many billion years, and you find, okay, here's how this, this thing was, was a little organism over here and this was a little organism over here and over time they got together and these are in plants and animals and these are just in plants and well I'll be damned look at that but the mitochondria is the power plant of your entire body that's and they reproduce it's not your DNA they have their separate DNA so they reproduce these mitochondria reproduce and they age and uh, the, the older you get, the, the, the more they age, and they're not as active, I think. And so I thought, okay, how do you challenge your mitochondria to divide more? So you've got more mitochondria, and they're, they've got this power plant, and they've got this energy force, because that's where it all comes from, the ATP molecule. So anyway. Part of what I do is to challenge my mitochondria, and when I'm going into the gym, I got a gym in the barn. I tell my wife, you know, I'm going to take mitochondria for a walk, or we're going to go out and work out the mitochondria. So I think that's just the thought process itself is enough to drive you, because you know you realize you may not live any longer, but you can live better. 
I, I see people, you know, they're my age or somewhere in this neighborhood. They don't, they don't relate to people that push themselves anymore. You know, they might push themselves into their recliner, but they don't push themselves. And I think you have to push yourself without, obviously, you know, I make the mistake and then I push myself beyond what my joints can handle and I end up with bad shoulder here or my knees hurt or something and that's just dumb on my part but I think you have to stay active I think you have to really get after it and it's an energy level I'm going to, this is going to be a commercial but it, it really is the absolute truth probably five six years ago I didn't feel well all the time I run out of gas about two in the afternoon, really, and I could get nothing done. And after that, and I thought, well, this must be what old age is about. My wife was hammering me about having sleep apnea. She said, you can't sleep. And I says, no, babe, you got sleep apnea. You're the one that can't sleep because you say I'm waking you up. I'm sound asleep. No, you're not. You're awake. So I relented and went to the sleep lab. It turns out I had severe sleep apnea. This woman said, it'll kill you. And she said, here's a chart, here's what you got, here's what we saw, here's where you're at. I thought, really? So I got that little gizmo, turned my life around, absolutely turned things around. It took me about 30 days to get used to wearing that thing, but I would not go without it. Now, I have more energy where I used to get tired and kind of like fall asleep about 2 in the afternoon. Not even close. Not even close. I get done, I work 10 hours a day, I get done here, I either play nine holes of golf with a buddy of mine, or I go home, I work out, I do all that other stuff, take a hot shower, a little whiskey, about 8, 30, 9 o'clock, I'm ready to fall asleep. But I get a full day. You know, I get up at around 4.30, my feet hit the floor. I get a full day out of that because of that sleep apnea machine. So anybody that would listen to this, and someone says you're snoring, you got sleep apnea, I'm say, cat? Wear that thing because it will add. This woman said it'll add 10 years to your life. That's what she said to me. That means I'm going to be 160. So what I'm thinking about is, you know, it gives me another three or four quality hours into my day. And that to me, that's that's huge. I've caught more snook. Otherwise, I'd fall asleep. But I go out in the backyard and you know I got a garden out there, a snook garden. I live there on the water, so. That's where I think a lot of the energy comes from. Really, you get a good night's rest where you didn't before. And the fact that, you know, I've always worked out, and I this mitochondria thing, I don't know where it goes, but it to me it's it goes back to it's like a chloroplast. You're only as good as those plants are only as good as that chloroplast. No chloroplast, it gets chlorotic, but you know this, doesn't do well. So you got to take care of your chloroplasts. Of course, plants have mitochondria too. But for us, we don't need chloroplasts. We get our glucose somewhere else. So my thing is, take these chloropl take these mitochondria for a walk. Challenge them. You know, the more you have, the more active they are. The more energy you got. Had what's, enough of that. What's your whiskey of choice? Well, I drink only because of my heritage. I drink Irish whiskey. I drink some Scotch because. Ancestry.com said I'm 38% Irish and 54% Norwegian, and then the rest of it somewhere in the British Isles, too. 2% Finnish. I don't know if I can claim 
2% finish. Can you see 2% finish in me? No. So, but I, I drink, I like uh, Irish whiskey for the most part. I drink domestic, but not so much. Most of it's Irish whiskey, some good scotch, but that's it. I'm not a beer drinker at all, and I'm not big on wine. I, I don't drink wine, but I do like my whiskey. Now, the, tell people I don't have a big red nose, you know, like <laughs> these, like you see, oh yeah, a guy likes his cups, you know, they used to say, well, I do, but I only drink, I let myself to two ounces a night. That's, that's, I, and I drink it straight, so I like to taste it, you know. A little sippy here and watching TV or playing my guitar, you know. When I play a guitar, a little bit of whiskey in me. I'm Bob Dylan, I'm Willie Nelson, I'm a range of people. You went back to school to <clears throat> Texas Tech Red online, Rager. online, I believe. Yeah. To get a degree in hotel institutional management, restaurant institute, hotel. I call it a rim degree. Okay. What was the purpose of that, and how has that helped form your outlook on the golf business? Well. You know, I was 0 for 2 with master's degrees. I got married when I was Purdue. We were going to have a child, so I wasn't able to finish. So I took the turf courses that I, the doc offered, and I'd had enough botany courses, but I didn't get my master's degree from there. And so that was in 66 and 7. So in 60, no, then in 82, I decided that I was going to go for an MBA. I thought I wanted to be a director of marketing. So I am. I, I took all the tests, the GMAT tests, and got accepted into Butler University. I was living in Annapolis at the time. Well, I was a single parent, and I had both kids at the time, and they were like early teens, 13 or 14. So I went to classes for one week, and then when I came, and I, I think I went to three classes that week, and you went from like 5.30 to 8.30 or something like that. But when I get back home, the house was a shambles. The kids were just fighting. And I had to come home and get things started for them when they got off out of school and get, you know, supper and everything together. And after one week, I thought, you dumbass, this isn't going to work. There's no way you can finish this program. So I dropped out. So now I'm over to. So Bobby Knight goes to Texas Tech, and I like Bobby Knight. And I thought, by God, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a class at Texas Tech. I'm going to take a finance class, something I don't know anything about online. And then I'll be not just a fan, but I'll be a Red Raider. And uh, I inquired there. I was at Jupiter Hills at the time. And this guy I talked to, Dr. Dodd, Tim Dodd, said, well, you know, you can get a master's degree here. I said, really? And he said, yeah. In what? So he explained it to me, and I said, well, how do I do that? And he said, well, what, was your, what were your uh, GRE, your graduate record exam? You may have took the GRE to go to graduate school. What were your scores? I said, oh. I called him Tim. I don't know why. It was Dr. Dodd, but I on the phone. I said, geez, Tim, I can't remember what they were. He said, well, when did you take it? Now, this is 19, 
Oh, this is like 2003. And I said, well, I took it in 1966. And he said, oh, that'll never do. You need to take it again. And I said, well, I took the GMAT. He said, what were your score? I don't know. When did you do that? I said, 82. Went to Butler. Oh, that'll never do. You got to take it. So I said, all right. So now I'm, you know, grousing around. I thought, I guess so. So I bought the book, studying, you know, doing all this studying for this GMAT or for the graduate record exam. So, you know, I get enough confidence up after about three months of studying, I'm going to go take it next time it's offered. So it's offered down in Coral Springs. So I get about three-quarters way down there, about 7 o'clock in the morning, you know, because they offered it early. And I thought, well, you dummy. You're just going to embarrass yourself. This is, it makes no sense. And then, you know, I drive a little further, and I think, well, who's going to know? Whoever scores these on the other end, they don't know who you are. Just a number. You're wasting your time. Nah, just go ahead. You're this far down. Go. So I got this argument going back and forth in my brain. So I get there. And I walk in there in this little room. I got all these college kids in there to take this test. They're all 22. And I come in and I look like I'm the janitor because I left the golf course. And I was by far the oldest person in there. And when I told that gal that I was in there to take this test, she just kind of looked at me. And then I go in there and I find out that it's computer-based, and I'm a paper guy. And I thought, oh, this is not going to work. This is not going to go well. But I took the test, and I finished it. And I drove away, and I'm thinking, well, so what? You know, nice try, Baldy. So about, I don't know, however many months later, Dr. Dodd called. And he says, Dick, you haven't, you haven't uh, registered for class. And I said, well, I didn't get anything. And he said, oh, yeah, we got your scores. You're in. And I said, really? I was so incredible. Really? I made it? And he said, yeah. He said, well, yeah, where, where are you at here? And I said, well, what do I got to do? Let's get started. He said, what courses do you want to do? I said, you tell me. I'm just tickled to be a part of it all. So he, you know, guided me through the darn thing, and so I started taking these classes. I made it part of my day, you know, which was really great. You know, we get off at, everybody gets off on Friday afternoon at noon, so I got all Friday afternoon there, and then I got Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon, and so those are my study days, and taking test days, and I made it just part of my day, you know. So anyway, I made it through the whole thing, but I had help from the people in, in, in Lubbock, Texas Tech, you know, they're very, very patient with me and, you know, because I had, had to call them up, you know, and say now, you know, Dr. Huffman and, you know, just things that I didn't understand and from long distance, you know, I mean, Lubbock's forever out there. So anyway, that's, and I did it, number one, I think one of the things was, as I mentioned Oscar Miles, Oscar and I had talked about being GMs, 40 years ago, you know, this is probably back in 1980, I said, Jesus, Oscar, the way things are going, either be, in, be one or report to one. What do you want to do? Well, Oscar was older than I was at the time. And um, so as I went further through, you know, life, and now I'm in Jupiter Hills, and, and I've got a little time on my hands, and I've got a computer, and I thought, yeah, night's there. I'm going to be a Red Raider. That's what I'm going to do. And it really worked out well because... 
I really liked the school and I liked the people that helped me through the whole, you know, this, this thing by long distance. Charlie Adams was the guy that I was talked to a lot on the phone and uh, Dr. Huffman. Uh, Jessica Young was uh, one of the professors of finance. I took this course, I didn't know anything about it. And after I'd get my tests back, you know, I'd see where I made the mistakes and I would correct them and send them back to her. You know, just to show her that I'm serious, I'm doing the work. So at the end of the year, so after the first couple tests, I called her back up and I said, you know, Dr. Wan, I want to tell you something. I said, the strokes that you're telling me that I need to take on this real estate computer, that thing was this big, or calculator is what it was, you know, the buttons on it. I said, I do what you say, but it doesn't jive. And she said, well, what's your calculator? And I told her, and she says, no, you need a Texas instrument. You're using the wrong one. I said, I didn't know there was a difference. Oh, yeah, there's a big difference. You need to read the book. <laughs> I said, okay. So you chastising me. So then I, at the end of the semester of the class, you know, I called her up, and I turned all my stuff in. It was like 1,000 points. And I had 786, okay? I had all A's up till now. And now I'm looking at a C. Not that I gave a damn, but it's a nice brag. I didn't, you know. So I called her up and I said, Dr. Ron, I said, I gotta tell you, I gotta be honest with you. I said, I'm not smart enough for a B, but I worked too hard for a C. So she gave me a B minus, <laughs> bless her heart. But I had a lot of help from tech from Texas Tech. They were really, really good people out there. I went out there, you know, was enthralled with the campus. But I did it because, number one, I knew that I was either going to have to, re sooner or later I'm going to have to report to one. I had always said I'm not going to report to a GM, and I never did. I, I'm just not going to do it. And so I didn't have to at, at uh, Loblolly. I didn't report to one at Jupiter, at uh, Selfish. I didn't report to one at Jupiter Hills. And I said, that's I'm adamant. I'm not going to report to one. There's no way that that GM can make my job easier or better. I had not met one that could do that. I've changed since then. You know, there are some, like Johnny can do one. You know, Congressional's got one. Matt Goddard can do that. They have a different perspective. But they understand that it's a couple of gears, and these gears have to mesh. And uh, so I thought, well, if I'm going to have to report to one of these guys, either I want to be one or if I have to report, because I was getting along, I got to make sure that that cat knows that my background and education is every bit as good or better than that person's. You know, this is just a big defense mechanism. And so that's that was the impetus for doing that. But the get back from that is that I learned to go from locker room speech to corporate speech to boardroom speech. I mean, that's kind of what I got out of that, uh, a perspective of business, how business works. I, I've ne never, I'm a, I'm, I'm a greenkeeper, I'm an agronomist, I don't think that way. You know, so um, I'm not that analytical. As a matter of fact, one of the things that directed me, you know, things nudge you in different directions was when I was with Scott's, they sent me to a, a uh, research, uh, not a researcher, but of uh, a um, guy. His name was Dr. Frederick Marcus. He was out of Pittsburgh, and he was like a 
personnel director, a guru that would analyze you and and you know you would take this battery of tests of um, aptitude and attitude and then he would kind of direct them to this guy can do this or he's suited for that. I'd gone to see him two times. Second time I was there, he said, you know, we're going to test you on something. You can't learn this. You either got it or you ain't. No way you can learn this stuff. I said, okay. He said, we're going to deal in abstract logic, abstract word association, abstract this. And I said, okay. I don't know anything about what he's talking about. I'm just taking these tests. So when we got done taking these tests, it was 1982. This one I was headed to Butler. He said, well, you really surprised me. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, um, because I was vying for the job of, of market, director of marketing. He said, uh, we give these tests to marketing directors, PhD candidates, and MBAs. They take this test. And you scored in the upper 10% in all these tests of those people that take the test. He says, you're a very, very, very creative person. However, he said, you're too competitive and you're too uncompromising and and when he said that, I knew I'm not going to get this job. And I said, well, Dr. Marcus, isn't that why, why I'm here, how I got here? And he said, no, it's probably been in your way. It was like a slap in the face. I walked away with knowing that, okay, so if they, if they think that that is a liability, but this level of creativity is an asset, okay, you know, maybe I... So it changed the way I thought about myself, changed the way I, I uh, approached problems and approached competing. Really, it was a huge way I chatted. Holy moly, this is a great tool. So anyway, that was what I got out of that thing. And then, you know, about two months ago, my wife did something with the computer, and there was this tennis shoe which kind of reinforced something I thought was kind of neat. She said, what color is this tennis shoe? It was on, and I said, it's pink. And she said, no, it's blue. I said, no, it's not, it's pink. She said, it's blue. I said, let me see what well, was pink. And I said, that is pink. And she said, no, I see blue. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, this is a test. If you see blue, you're very, you're analytical. If you see pink, you're creative. Well, that told me that I'm not very analytical. And I'm not. I mean, I, I have to really work to, to do that. Well, in our business, you have to be both. And my weakness is, apparently, it showed up very being very analytical. I, I've struggled with that. So... That's what I worked the hardest at. You know, that's why I got all that. A lot of that's just things that I study because I can't come up with it if I don't work at it. All right. I love that sound. Yeah. Um, how, how much longer do you see yourself doing this? Because it appears that you have plenty of gas left in the tank. Well, I think when I recognize my license plate number on a silver alert on 95, I'm going to work somewhere. I probably won't know where I'm going, but it, that's probably when I'll say, or someone will say, hey, Baldy, rein it in. It's time to, you know, you're done. 
But I, I just, if you can make a contribution, if you enjoy it, um, why would you quit? What do you do with your time? I mean, I see people, you know, that have retired and, and it just looks like they quit learning. You know, they quit the challenge. And I, you know, I'm not a quitter. I hate to say it that way, but uh, I'm too dumb to quit. You know, some people can get away with it. I can't. So as long as you like what you're doing and you, you can make a, make a contribution, as long as you have credibility, people believe you, and you can make that contribution, then why wouldn't you do what you like to do? I mean, that's, that's the way I see it. And this is this thing here is so much creativity involved in it when what I do here. It's not just maintenance. You know, that's when the gum loses its sugar. That's when you're just chewing. But as long as there's some things where you can, can um, as Tom Fazio says, make adjustments, the necessary adjustments to improve something, why, why would you quit? I just can't. It'd be hard for me to quit. It really would. I've told somebody a while back, I said, you know, if someone told me I couldn't go to work anymore, I'd probably start crying. I wouldn't have a purpose. I wouldn't have a reason to get I have to really find something that was meaningful. I probably could, you know, I could probably volunteer for something and focus onto that. But right now, I just like this. This is, the people can make it oppressive. I don't allow that to happen. I mean, when I run into that guy, I just give him the forearm because you can do that at a place like this. You know, I gave him the forearm at Jupiter Hills. It cost me a job. But uh, I can do it here. And because we're such a big public operation. Dick, thanks for your time. It's we always done? a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, Barnsley. That's a keeper.